I'm so excited to bring the Word of God today. And it would be very easy for me to hit play on the sermon that God has written into my heart and just sort of perform out of the overflow of my study time and all the times that I do this message out loud, sort of envisioning this moment. It would be really easy for me to just go into that right now, but I felt like it would be inauthentic to get up here and proclaim a truth about the Word of God from a position where it looks like I received this in the context of a life that has it all together. I had a terrible week this week. Anxiety, like, hitting me to a level that hasn't been familiar for a year and a half and at the most unlikely of times, um, going home with an attitude that was absolutely unacceptable to my wife and to my kids, short-tempered, angry, handling situations. I had so many conversations with people in our church that stuff that's really sensitive and requires all of your energy to even participate in a conversation. And it's like... I, I I've been doing this for seven years now, so you, you've had the conversation where so-and-so is leaving the church, and you've had the conversation where somebody has a question about something that was said in a sermon, and you got to explain it, but also like guide them and pastor them, and then you've had the conversation with a mom who's losing her mom who's been in a 10-year battle with cancer, and then you have another conversation with the staff issue here, and man, I was just exhausted, and at the end of myself... And at the end of this week going, I still got to get up there on Sunday. And I was like, you know what, Lord? It, when I get up there on Sunday, you're going to be faithful because you're more passionate about your word going out than I am. But as you do that, God, I don't want to get up there and proclaim the word you've given me and them go, see, he's, he's just got this access to the Holy Spirit of God. And his, his life is void of the trouble and the busyness and the craziness of mine. And so but I, I know that even as I preach sometimes because of the gift God has given me, the struggle looks inconsistent with what your daily life looks like. I want you to know I'm, I'm with you in it. And I'm working through things in my own sanctification that many of you are. But at the same time, I had a time with the Lord in his word on Friday where I do not exaggerate when I say this, and I don't want to say this like it's cliche or normal, God spoke to me. And I know people say that, and like God spoke to me, and he said, and it's like, stop right there. That's a miracle. God talked to you? The one who made everything. I have something to say to finite human beings, sinful, broken you. He did, and it was one of the most clear things I've ever heard. It has nothing to do with the sermon I'm preaching and has everything to do with my soul. But here's what happened. One moment in the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, completely flipped the switch of a week derailed of the presence of God I was having. Why do I bring that up? I'm not bringing that up to just give you a sneak peek into my life. And I'm not bringing that up to go, wow, go me. I had a good quiet time. I'm bringing that up because some of you have had a week where you have felt disconnected and distant from God. And even as we sang this morning, the presence of God feels like it's a million miles away. But here's the thing. You're one moment where the Holy Spirit illuminates your eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God. It might be right now. And one moment on a Sunday, on any day, where Jesus is exalted and Jesus is seen clearly can change everything. So I'm believing that that's gonna happen. I'm not hitting play on a Christmas series. I'm not hitting play on some things that I studied. I'm preaching to you out of the overflow being on my knees before God and going, God, would you come and use this? This is our Christmas series we're beginning today. And the title of part one is called The Word in the Waiting. The Word in the Waiting. Can you look at somebody next to you and say word, word. We'll talk about the word of God. The word in the waiting. So the Christian life is locked and loaded with seasons of waiting. 
Everybody in this room to some degree is waiting on something, whether it's an answer from God, whether it's a door of provision, whether it's some kind of explanation of why something unfolded the way that it did, waiting on a choice that somebody else is having to make. And even if you're not in a season where it feels like you're in a waiting room, you will be soon. And the great thing about Christmas is it's a yearly reminder that God is working in our waiting. You think about the story of how Jesus shows up after 400 years of no prophet speaking and God is being faithful even in a day where the people of God, Israel, are so oppressed and you go, wow, the, the wait was worth it because God was working even when it seemed like he was distant. And so many things about Christmas, we remind ourselves through waiting. If you have kids, you probably have a way of building up to Christmas Day where you kind of remove something. Or At my house growing up, we had this weird Santa thing on the wall where one day at a time, it was like this little rodent got moved from one pocket to the next. And it sounds disgusting, but it seems super normal at the time. And now at our house, we're, we're, we're like super spiritual. We have a Christmas chain where it's like every day chains are breaking, building up to Christmas Day. One, The red ones are Elliot's, the green ones are Aniston's, and they don't like switching off every other day. They're really not going to like sharing a room when baby number three gets here, but we're not talking about that right now. And so there's this buildup, there's this long wait, and the idea is anticipation and longing and waiting leads up to God delivering on his promise, and it's beautiful. But most of the time in church when we talk about waiting, we talk about trusting God in such a way that points out the fact that he's working, but in sort of a subtle way, we interpret that to mean that our part in obedience is a passive level of trust that lets God do what God does while we wait for the answers. And I believe it's that passive level of trust that causes us to miss out on our part of what we're called to do when we are in a season of waiting. See, trust is not passive. Trust is proactive. And so we, we preach about waiting and we go, listen, God is in the waiting. I've told you guys before, God is not a doctor on the other side of a waiting room where you're in a room like, okay, when is he going to call my name and when am I going to see him? He's with you in the waiting room. Like he's actually building a deeper level of intimacy with you in the waiting. But we don't ever really talk about what am I supposed to do? Am I paralyzed? Am I without movement? And I believe your trust is supposed to be proactive and the work is found in the word of God. The work is found in the word of God. Pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Every season of waiting is an invitation to go deeper in your knowledge of the word of God and in your application of the promises of God. My whole life I've heard in church that Jesus was born after 400 years of silence from God. It wasn't until hearing a preacher argue something recently that I didn't know what I, think, what I thought about it when he said it, but after sort of chewing on it for a while, I was like, wow, that's so good. You know, some of the things you disagree with when you hear immediately, if you'll take the time to meditate on it and not make a YouTube video or a post about it, but you'll like, you'll meditate about it, you could end up long-term going, huh, there was something to that. Sometimes the, the things from this stage are meant to actually be digested by you over time and not responded to with an email by five o'clock on Monday morning. And so it's like, well, that, that's just me personally. I don't know if anybody else struggles with that, but, um, <laughs> wow. It's like, air your grievances, Miles. Um, no, faithful to the word of God. Okay, here's what he said. He said, the whole notion that God was silent for 400 years is absolutely wrong. God did not go mute for 400 years. God did not speak to a prophet for 400 years, but they had the word of God. God had said plenty, and he was definitely speaking to people's lives. It's not like in heaven God was like, okay, I want to build a big moment of buildup before the birth of Jesus. Let's do nothing in the earth just so when he gets here, people are like really wanting us to do something from heaven. No, God had spoken through his word, and I want to, I want to like 
correct a little bit of something Stuart said last week when he was talking about the copying of the Torah during the Babylonian exile. He was talking about the massive amount of copying of the Torah that was happening during the Babylonian exile, not the original manuscripts that were written, which were much earlier than the Babylonian exile. So the, the law of God, the prophets, the Torah had been written and could be studied for a long time before Israel was taken into exile in Babylon. And so the people of God, for that 400-year period of silence, they had every opportunity to encounter the voice of God. It's called the Word of God. Now, God doesn't speak through a prophet, and I believe that's because it's, it sort of mirrors the 400 years of slavery that they had in Egypt, and Jesus is going to lead us into the Promised Land, and that's awesome. But don't think for a second that Jesus showed up after 400 years of God doing nothing in the world. The Word of God was speaking, and the Word of God was moving, and so... I believe that the work to do in the waiting is to engage with the word of God because that is where God is always speaking. And even when I say word of God, I can't stand it because the tendency in this room when I say word of God is to just think about the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. But when you think about the Bible, most of you are thinking about 66 books to be studied, not the voice of the living word of God that's active in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I say word of God, yes, I'm talking about the Bible, but no, I'm not talking about a Bible study. I'm talking about a relational dynamic to your relationship with God where in a season where you'd love to get answers from God about something specific, he might give you promises about something more important. And he might speak to you in such a way where the work that we have to do leading up to Christmas is less about getting an answer from God about what we're waiting for and more about reading the answers that are already there that we're neglecting engaging with the promises of God and going, this word of God is the vision and the voice of God. Every time you hear the phrase word of God, think vision and voice of God. No one has ever seen God. That's what the scriptures say. Everything about God is visibly seen in Jesus. But for the vast majority of us, unless you're Moses, you're not going to have a moment where you see God. And if you do, you'll be dead and in his presence in seconds, probably faster. The vision of God is the vision of the promises of God that connect you to the person of Jesus. And I know some people like to argue that they've heard the audible voice of God. I'm not here to make that argument against many of you, but 99.999% of you, that will never happen, and you don't need to argue that it is. But the audible voice of God to our souls spiritually is the word of God that lands on us. This is so much more than a collection of stories to be studied. This is the opportunity and the doorway to know Jesus personally. And so my vision for this Christmas season for our church, we got two weeks till Christmas, two weeks, guys. My vision is a return to the word of God with a newfound zeal and a newfound passion to read from the scriptures. God, I want to connect with you this Christmas. And to do that, we're going to look at one of the most underrated stories in the Christmas narrative about a man and a woman who held on to the promises of God, and they saw, like physically saw, the salvation that they had waited on for so long. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over this room. Hold it up in Birmingham. Hold it up in Lake Martin. We see you guys. Bible attendance, phenomenal today, guys. Absolutely loving it. Man, this is so great. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. Luke 2 is the most famous Christmas narrative. We're going to read verses 1 through 21 on Christmas Eve together. But we're going to look at this little section, verses 22 through 40, really quick, and talk about a Christmas narrative that I think is greatly ignored. Anytime we read a book of the Bible, we always got to ask ourselves, as much as we can know, who wrote it and why did they write it? 
Too many of you, your reading of the Bible is, you know that desperate Bible drill, not the one where you're like trying to get a date, but the one where you're trying to get a promise from God, and you're like, God, speak to me. I'm going to turn randomly in my Bible, but I'm actually going to control it and land in the middle to make sure it's Psalms, and it's something relevant to my life. I don't want to be over here in Leviticus. And so you're like, God, speak to me. It's random. Oh, that one didn't apply. That that, that round was off. It's like an eight ball. And you're like, I'm going to just... Hope that God speaks. No, no. I I believe knowing as much as we can who wrote something, why they wrote it is the key to studying it. So Gospel of Luke is written by a physician named Luke who wrote a historical account of the orderly events of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And then he wrote Acts, which is like volume two, the story of how when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, the church of God spread all over the Greco-Roman world. But the reason why he wrote it, this is so huge to understand, the reason why Luke wrote this gospel is to connect the redemptive story of God from the beginning of time to the person of Jesus. Luke's purpose is to connect Old Testament to New Testament. Now, he wouldn't say that because it wasn't called the Old Testament and the New Testament back then, but when you look at his themes, he's got this heavy pattern of going, you remember this from the Mosaic Law? You remember this from Father Abraham? You remember this from back then? This is how Jesus is the culmination of every promise God has ever made, and this is how Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection connects you to God, Jew and Gentile, every single person invited. So you're going to read some of those themes in this, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. If you're there, say, I'm there we got a lot of verses to read. Do you all like studying the scriptures in church? That's what we're going to do. Here we go. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised... You may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Powerful. Let's go back to the very beginning to verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites, required by the law of Moses. This is Luke doing his thing. 
reaching back to Old Testament, reaching back to Mosaic law. And what he wants you to know is that Jesus is born into a Jewish family that is adhering to the law of Moses. This is important. Paul will say later that Jesus was born as one under the law to redeem those under the law. It's very important that Jesus was born to a family where he could fulfill the law on our behalf so he could deliver us from the requirement of it and into a greater law, which is the law of love and a relationship with him, where the law is still helpful. We don't put the law away. That's what Paul talks about. But now we have free access to the God of the universe by the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus in a new covenant, a new era where God is available and we get to obey him out of the delight and overflow of acceptance, not an effort to gain his approval. So when the time had come for the purification rites, Joseph and Mary take him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 13. There's all of these laws for how the firstborn son is supposed to be dedicated to God. And I don't have time to go into that fully and all the meanings and and, and things that had to go into it. But I do want to hit on this second part in verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. In Leviticus chapter 12, there's an ordinance that kind of lays out how you need to make a sacrifice when you dedicate your firstborn son to the Lord. But it doesn't say a pair of doves or two young pigeons. It actually says a lamb and a dove or a lamb and a pigeon. But then in Leviticus 12.8, it says, hey, if anybody can't afford the lamb and the dove, just bring two doves or two pigeons, and God will make provision for the fact that you are too poor to offer the sacrifice that you should be offering. So when Luke says they came to offer two doves or two young pigeons, he's going, Jesus' family is so poor, they can't afford the sacrifice. By the way, the wise men haven't arrived yet in case you think they're kind of stowing away the frankincense and myrrh and gold. You're like, oh, they're holding that for a rainy day and they're going to bring the poor. No, 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 no. That that happens actually probably like a year or two years after Jesus was born. I know I remind people every year and ruin their nativity sets and tell them, surprise, the wise men weren't there. Um, They got there a lot later. Let's be historically accurate. And there probably wasn't three. And and they weren't traveling east. They were traveling west because they were from the east. But we'll just sing the first Noel like it doesn't matter. Um, But there's a lot of things that the, the actual story will ruin for you in your singing but in this moment in this moment Jesus's family so poor that they have to offer the two doves or two pigeons it's just a reminder of the humility of Jesus that too often we skip to the cross to see the humility of Jesus and skip over his birth and the family he was born into I had a seminary professor who argued he said The most humble act in human history was not the crucifixion. The most humble act in human history was the incarnation. That actually, it took more humility for Jesus to come out of his throne in heaven and be a desperate baby boy born in a manger than it took for him to go to the cross. Now, I believe the whole thing is one narrative of downward humility. It's like, not only is he going to come down from heaven on his throne to be a human being, but he's not just going to be a human being. He's going to be a poor human being. He's not just going to be a poor human being. He's going to be born in a time where his people are oppressed and enslaved. And not just that, he's going to be in the prime of his life and punished in the most vile, violent way imaginable. He's going to be embarrassed publicly. He's going to bleed every drop of blood. And in the process of doing that, he's going to wash his own disciples' feet. Jesus' story is a story of downward humility where he's literally Coming down in such a way where he's going, I can't go lower to serve you. May it always blow our minds that the incarnation is a thing. 
And when we celebrate Christmas, here's a good idea for this year. This is what I'm going to start doing with my family. I think we should stop celebrating Christmas as, as Jesus' birthday and start celebrating it as a celebration of the incarnation. Because I, I get it, like, happy birthday, Jesus, and we put the candles in the middle, and it's like, trying to make sense of that, even as an adult, is hard, and it's really weird for kids. Even though, yo, I've been, my family, we've done this before, so I'm not, like, hating on you if you do this. But it's such a bigger deal that Jesus, throne of heaven to baby boy, that's the miracle of Christmas. It's not just that he was born, it's where he came from. It's the humility of God with us, Emmanuel. And that has to continue to rock our worlds every Christmas. Can you believe God came down from heaven to become one of us and not just one of us, the least of us? But the story doesn't end there. Go to verse 25. This is where I want us to live. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Okay, if I lost you at stop singing happy birthday, Jesus, look up here. Um, you, you can do that. Do, do whatever you want. Honor Jesus in your family. Make your own decisions. Don't send me an email. Um, <laughs> this, this is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to see. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? That means he's aware of the promises from the Old Testament that say that a son will be born in the line of David who will be the Messiah, the anointed one, and deliver the people of God from oppression and suffering and sin. He knows the scriptures. But his knowledge of scripture opens the door for a revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit that's personal and immediate. Pay attention to this. Did you notice this? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and then he gets a word from the Holy Spirit that says, hey, you're actually not going to die until you see face-to-face the Messiah who's sent in the line of David. And you go, whoa, 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 how did that happen? It happened because he rooted his life in the promises of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit moves to those who live their lives at that root. So you, you, you go, well, we're just supposed to stick to what is written. I believe what is written guides us into personal encounters with God. And by the way, you, can, you literally cannot make that argument based on this passage. How does he get this? He never read... Simeon, you will not die before you see Jesus. He received that from the Holy Spirit, but he received it from the Holy Spirit because his lifestyle was rooted in the word of God. And you know that to be true in your life too. You've had moments during the day where you were only present to pay attention to them because you had rooted your life in the scriptures. See, the scriptures are a doorway to actually being present to what the Holy Spirit is doing all around you. It's not just about getting lost on a page. It's about what the page awakens in you and it opens your eyes to pay attention throughout your present day. Now he receives a word, and that word is this. You're not going to die until you see the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Christ. So moved by the Spirit, we could talk about that line in and of itself the whole time, but we got to move on. He went into the temple courts, and here's what happened. When the parents brought, the ch- brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is a very famous passage. If you grew up Anglican, this is actually in the Book of Common Prayer, if you've ever heard of that. It's called the Nunc, paying attention to my Latin, guys, Dimitis, Nunc Dimitis. It means that this has been said for generations in the church 
as a way of having peace in the promises of God, even unto death. What does he say? Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. If you have ESV, it translates it better. It says, according to your word. According to your word, what? You may now dismiss your servant in peace. There's a direct relationship between experiencing the peace of God for yourself and attaching your life to the promises of God in Scripture. Jesus came to bring peace on earth. The pathway to peace goes through a doorway called promises. And he says, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And here's why I'm up here trying to push our whole church into deeper study of the word of God and deeper encounters with God this Christmas. Because I believe your peace on the inside is either going to be rooted to what you see or what God says. It's one or the other. You're either going to spend your whole life riding the roller coaster ride of what's happening out there and whether or not it aligns with your plans, or you will attach and anchor your life to the promises of God in Scripture and experience the peace of God. So, you want peace? Super anxious? Had a brutal week? Here's the antidote. Here it is. Ready? Root your life and your soul and your spirit in the promises of God that have been prepared for you in the Scriptures. Here's the problem. Here's why our peace is attached to what we see and not what God says. This is so deep. Because we, we don't know what God says. We don't pay attention to his promises. We don't read this. I know. Thousands of you do. And I know we got people growing spiritually in this place at a faster rate than they ever have before in our life. But in large part, the greatest discipleship problem we have in our church is our unwillingness to pick up and apply the Bible to our lives daily. It's that. And here's what I'm not trying to do. I am not trying to add another thing into your very, very, very stressful month. I'm not trying to do that. Just this week, and college students, I know you just finished finals, so like stress is gone in your life. Enjoy Netflix and watch Right Now Media and actually engage with content that roots you to the Word of God. But the vast majority of us are struggling. Okay, I have had, I'm trying to think back to what just happened this week. We had, we had like a double birthday party for both of our girls because we could find no other weekend where they could, where we could make it happen. So Elliot is turning three next week and then Aniston turns five in January. So we had, we had a double birthday party one night, but then they had a ballet recital literally the next morning. And this is all coming on top of the ACC kids Christmas play that's today and then the staff Christmas party that's tonight. And it's like, I love Christmas. My life is over. That's about how I feel right now. And some of you who are in this room, if you could be honest, Christmas is not like, it's so peaceful and I love the decoration and the cute songs. Thanks, Matt, for that song. I'm going to add that to my playlist. Like, if you could get honest, you're like, this is the most stressful month of your life. I'm not trying to slide in in this moment and go, hey, you really should read your Bible more, and you've been really skimping on that all of 2021, and what if you finish your year actually adding the word of God to all that you have going on? That's not what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give you the doorway to the reason why you exist. I'm trying to make sure that you actually hear and respond to the voice of God. How are we neglecting something that's so readily available? It's because we attach our attention to what will, whatever will give immediate gratification, whatever will give that next dopamine hit, whatever will make my brain and my body able to numb itself to face a moment. But if we will just take the time to actually focus and pay attention to what is written in the scriptures and not just study it, but in a relational way, take it and apply it to our lives. I believe God will do brand new things. I want to speak to people who are far from God. The message of Christmas time at ACC is simple. Come home from, for Christmas. 
And home is not the place that you go on December 25th. Home is found within the pages of Scripture. And when you open this, you will hear almost immediately, especially if you've been neglecting it, you will hear the voice of the enemy in your head. It's not God. And that voice will go, look at you. Wow. You're actually going to listen to what your preacher said and pretend like you've been doing this all along. You have no knowledge of this stuff. You are, and you, some of you really think God is in heaven when you open your Bible going, whoa, bonus points. Okay, I see you. I know you're not going to keep it up and be consistent, but I see you. Y'all, that's not God. That's a liar. If anyone wants you to open this book, it is your heavenly father who's going, I have stuff I'm just waiting to reveal to you. And it's not pronouncements of judgment about all that you've done wrong. It's a doorway of mercy into being reminded that you belong to God because of the blood of Jesus. Come on, if you open the scriptures this week, do not believe that lie for one second. Just go there in your mind to go, I'm tempted to believe that I'm in over my head and that And that if anybody saw me right now, I should be ashamed. No, no, no. God is in heaven leaning forward going, finally, finally, I've just wanted to be with you. I've just wanted to draw you in. Even your motivation and intention in opening the word of God, I'm going to argue this. It's important, but not that important. If you're just doing it to do it sometimes, think about this. The prodigal son, when he came home, he came home because he ran out of money and didn't have any other options. God's not waiting at the door going, are you coming home because you love me or are you coming home because you have no other place to go? He's just sprinting to embrace him. Even if you're opening the word of God on the back end of going, I don't even really know why I'm doing this. God is going, come on, just come on and get your mind on this text and get your mind on these truths. So here's what I want to give you. Before I pray and before we sing, I want to give you three things that I see in this passage that will actually help you during this Christmas season Make the promises of God the anchor to your peace instead of the plans of man. Here's number one. Is this, is this helping anybody? Is this good? I'm so impressed that so many of you are here today. Like, it just blows my mind that y- y'all keep coming back. It's like you get convicted and then you leave, but then you're like, I need more of Jesus calling me into the more. And if you're new, welcome. Stick around. Here we go. Number one, watch for the activity of God, not for the end of the wait. Watch for the activity of God, not for the end of the wait. See, when we're in a season of waiting, we become watchful for it and not watchful for him, and you miss the pursuit. So it's like, I'm watching for it. I'm watching for when all of this suffering goes away. I'm watching for the answer I've been looking for, or I'm watching for, for, for that thing I really want. But what if, what if your eyes spiritually were more watchful for the activity of God than the thing you want to see God do? And to preach this, I want to talk about this woman, Anna. Now, I know I didn't go into Simeon's prophecy over Mary and Joseph because Gage is actually going to hit on that in full detail next week. But I want to read this part to you about this woman, Anna. This is so interesting. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. All of that's significant. Don't have time to go into it. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. If you see that in your Bible, you probably have a footnote. And the footnote talks about the confusion of the language that this phrase probably doesn't mean that she was married seven years and then a widow until she turned 84. It literally means she was a widow for 84 years. She's even older than that if you look at the literal translation of the language. She never left the temple but worshiped day and night. 
fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Look at this phrase, looking forward to the redemption of Israel. That's almost synonymous with what was said about Simeon, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Those are almost the same phrases. Because waiting is not looking upward, going, I'm passive and I want an answer. It's looking forward with expectation regardless of what you see in real time. How do I know that? She's a widow for 84 years. If anyone in the eyes of the world is lonely and has nothing to give and nothing to offer and, and, and should have so many grievances with God, it's this woman. But yet it says she was in the temple all the time. That phrase day and night does not mean she lived there. It's a phrase that we would say of like, oh, if the doors were open to the church, this woman is there. Like she, is, she is going to be there. And she's not there complaining about her circumstances. She's there fasting and praying. She's there watchful for the activity of God. And because she's watchful, pay attention to this, she saw Jesus in the flesh. See, people who are not watchful for the activity of God miss out on the miracles of God. It's right there because she's fully alive. You wouldn't expect someone in their hundreds to be fully alive. But she is fully alive, she is on fire, and she is moving. Why? Because God is always moving. Even in a season where it looks like he's doing nothing in your life, he's moving in the word of God. If you attach your life, what did she attach her life to? The looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She attached her life to the promises of God, and what does she get? A deeper level of intimacy with God. And ultimately, the end of her waiting, in her sight, the salvation offered in Jesus. Pay attention. I don't know why God makes us go through so many seasons of waiting. I don't have an answer for everything you've been through, everything you're going through right now, but I do know this. In the waiting, you will experience a level of intimacy with Jesus that you can't get any other way. I don't know any other way to say it. Like you just, and until you go through it, you don't know what I'm talking about. But when you go through it and you get to the other side, you go, I would never want to go through that again. And if I could write the circumstances, that suffering would have been way more alleviated. But you know what? Now that I think back on it, he was closer than I've ever experienced him before. And I know him in a way that I wouldn't have known him previously. And so I don't want the circumstances again, God, if I could have my way, I want an easy road. But at the same time, more than I want an easy life, I want a meaningful life. And God, you give me meaning and you draw me close. Watch for the activity of God not for the end of the wait. That's number one. Number two is this. Attach your peace to the promises of God, not the plans of man. Attach your peace to the promises of God, not the plans of man. Now, when we say peace at Christmas time, we need to be careful because peace on earth, goodwill to man, we, we kind of turn peace at Christmas time into this therapeutic spiritual massage that baby Jesus in the Tempur-Pedic manger came to give us. It's like, oh, it's so peaceful and it's beautiful and life is good and Christmas and fires and ah, I just wanna, I just wanna relax and enjoy. Listen, Jesus' version of peace is very different than that. His version of peace is the opposite of that externally, that when the whole world's on fire and nothing makes sense and everything's lonely and everything's depression and everything's violence and everything's off and everything sinful, that you can have an inner level of stability that's attached to an anchor for your soul that runs deeper than riding the roller coaster ride of circumstances. So peace this Christmas might look like chaos all around you, but it looks like clarity within you. How do you get it? You attach your peace to the promises of God, not the plans of man. 
And this is a relational pursuit to receive personal promises from God. So the Simeon story, it messes with me because it leads me to believe that if I root my life in the promises of God, God might say something to me that is individual for me and not for you and not for you. And the problem with that from a spiritual leadership perspective is that people can run wild with revelations that they've had from God and it might be off. I think we've got to be a church that's comfortable in the tension of knowing you might get a word from God and months later be like, yeah, that wasn't God. I was just hungry. Um, you, you, like you might write down something that's like, I think God's speaking to me. And then later be like, mm, no, that, that, that was off. But until you actually try to journal and write down what you believe God is speaking to you and learn over time, like, oh my goodness, that was him. And I know it was him because I was rooting my life in the word of God and so I got a word from God and then over time, that promise is what I held on to instead of my plan and whether or not things went the way I wanted it to. Some of y'all have been following Jesus for multiple decades and you don't have any evidence of promises that he's spoken to you individually and then confirmed on the back end. And the reason why is to live your life by the promises of God, you have to do things and obey God in ways that make no sense if God's not real. The promises of God call you out of comfort. They call you out of easy. They call you out of security, but they call you into the more of God. So here's what I want you to do. As you're going into the scriptures and as you're mindful and you're paying attention throughout your day, when you think God has something for you individually, write it down and look back on it and believe over time in the promises that God gives you individually. Now, I believe the scriptures are sufficient. You can write down verse after verse after verse, and you should be looking back on those verses. But when the verses of Scripture lead to an individual relationship with your heavenly Father, be bold like Simeon. Believe that voice. God wants you to develop spiritually so that you learn to trust the voice within you called the Holy Spirit. And yes, I know for some of you, you're like, Miles, that's dangerous. Because people could be running with things that are not exactly from God. You're right. It has to be developed over time. But spiritual growth is about growing in your trust of the voice of God from within. And the voice of God from within, when it is guided by the word of God that speaks truth, there's two things that have to combine. The promises of scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're not going to go 100% one or the other. Like grace, truth, we're going to be 100% both. Promises of God, power of the Holy Spirit. Watch those two things combine, and now guess what you get? Peace. And guess what God gets? Glory. So here's what I want you to do. Attach your peace to the promises of God, not the plans of man. And in that, I want to invite you into a meaningful life. This will be the last thing I say about point two. The greatest tragedy in this room right now is not somebody who has a hard life. The greatest tragedy is someone who has a meaningless life. And that's why when Jesus showed up, he did not show up simply to make our lives easier. In a lot of ways, he does. And eternally speaking, yes, he frees us to the presence of God forever. But at the end of the day, Jesus did not come from heaven with the mission of ease all of their tension and end anything that might be difficult. No, he didn't come to make life easy. He came to make it meaningful. And what makes it meaningful is when his presence is able to carry you through things that would make no sense if God's not real. So hold on to the promises of God. Don't just hold on to them. Act on them like they are true. And even in real time when you're tempted to doubt, trust in the voice of God. And like Simeon, you'll see the day where you go, no way. In my old age, God, you can dismiss me in peace now because you've been faithful to answer what you promised to your people and what you promised to me. That's number two. Lastly, here we go. I just, I only had two points 
at nine o'clock last night and then God just dropped this one on me to end the sermon. Keep your focus on the sun, not your sin. Keep your focus on the sun, not your sin. You notice that in this passage, all the attention is one place, the son of God. All the attention from Simeon, all the attention from Anna, all the attention from Joseph, it's like, here he is. And I believe the greatest thing that happens when you look to the word of God instead of all the other options that you have for your attention is that you actually get the opportunity to look away from self and look on the sun. Robert Murray McShane, one of my favorite theologians, said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I love that. So we read quotes like that and we go, wow, that's powerful. But I'm not there. I'm not Simeon. I'm not Anna. I don't have a baby I can run to who's physically in front of me. And you're right, you don't. But John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the living and active word of God. How do I take 10 looks at Jesus? I take 10 looks at the word. Because studying the word of God is not about memorizing facts or applying a to-do list of religion. Looking to the word of God is about looking into the face of Jesus. So I just know for me personally, I've had moments where my entire spirituality has been looking at me. And that is ugly. And that is short. And not like something in front of my height. But that is like so inadequate. So not enough. But when I take a look at Jesus and I go, he's all sufficient. He's the promise maker, promise keeper. He's the one who holds me through the waiting. I experience a level of closeness with him where I know this is not a religion I believe in. This is a relationship that I've experienced. Oh, I want this. I want this for our church so bad. I want your spirituality to stop riding on how good the sermon is. I want your spirituality to stop riding on the latest revelation that God gave to someone else. I want you to have this. This is yours. This is mine in Jesus. And this is how we face the waiting. Let's stand up all over this space. If you're in Birmingham, Lake Martin, you can stand up as well. I want to pray for you and then... Matt's just got some truths that we want to go out into our church as we go out into our week. If you're comfortable, would you just turn your hands toward heaven as a symbol of your availability? I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just entrust this army of thousands of people to you this week. God, let them go out into secret places. And don't let them spend all that time trying to kick down a door you've already unlocked. God, let them just open the door and walk in. Let them just open their Bible and walk into your presence. God, would you show them new things from your word that you've never revealed to them before? I just trust you, Holy Spirit, to be clear when, when a moment of clarity needs to come. I trust you to convict when conviction needs to come, but I also trust you to comfort when you just want to throw your arms around somebody. God, don't let us do this alone. Let us do this in community. Let us be released. Our hands are open as symbolic of our hearts, God. We want more of your voice. We want more of Jesus. We want more revelation. We don't want Anna and Simeon to be the only ones who got to see a moment like this. We want to jump into the pages of scripture and know you personally and intimately. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us the ability to do that. Help us to respond with lives of obedience that say we believe that. God, we sing to you now. We lift up songs of praise and remembrance right now. In Jesus' name, amen.